Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you this morning. My name is DJ. I'm the associate minister here at The Summit. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 2. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. You can also follow along um, on your device, summitstl.info slash notes. You can follow along with uh, the sermon this morning. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Awesome God, as we open your word this morning, we ask in your powerful name what we know not. Please teach us what we have not. Please give us what we are not. Please make us. Amen. All right, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you right in this moment. I'm, a, I'm about to shake some of you. And I don't know that you're ready. But we're going to get through it together. All right? There are things about Christmas I don't like. Just take it in. I know I've just shattered some really core beliefs that some of you guys have, and there are some of you that are tempted to walk out right now, but hang with me. I'm going to explain. Some of you are new this morning, and you have no idea what just happened. And that's cool, too. I love Christmas. I love 99.7% of things that have to do with Christmas. But there are a few things that I hate. I know. I don't like coming to your ugly sweater Christmas party when you still have the heat on 72. (laughs) I don't like the unexpected gift giver who thinks that in their mind we're best friends and they've spent probably a hundred or more dollars on a really nice gift for me that I really enjoy, but here I'm caught with empty hands, not even knowing we were on like cookie tin level at Christmas time. But the thing that I hate more than anything else that gives me great anxiety is I start, about this time of year, I start looking around my house and I see all of the things I have four kids, eight years old and under. And our house is already full of toys and craft kits and clothes. And I'm thinking, good gracious, we're about to bring in so much more. And I don't know where it's going to go. Anybody else have this struggle this time of year? Like, be honest. Like, it literally, I was sitting in my house the other day, and I'm looking around at all the stuff that my kids have dumped out that they don't play with. They just say, hey, let's dump it out and then walk away. And I'm thinking, where where are we going to put anything new? We're just weeks away from getting more Paw Patrol toys, from getting more French lip bracelet kits from getting more Disney-themed pajamas that they're going to grow out of by February. And I don't know what to do. So a couple years ago, we had a radical moment in our family. I gathered the troops together. I said, listen, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going through the house, and we're going to purge. We're going to get rid of stuff. We're going to throw it away. We're going to have a throwaway pile. We're going to have a donate pile. We're going to have a keep it pile, but the keep it pile has to be approved by me. That's key. And they were all like, see, I have this tendency. I can get my kids excited about cleaning things. And it lasts for about two minutes. 
And then inevitably what happens as we're dumping out toys and as we're going through things, they're like, oh, this little bear that's missing an eye. I forgot how much I love this bear. I will snuggle with it forever. And I'm like, no, that's going directly in the garbage. And then the tears start coming. Dad, no, his name's Billy. Now we've given it a name, which makes it even harder, right? But what happens is at the end of this purge, I'm like, guys, we've thrown away two McDonald's toys and a torn Velociraptor book. Like, that's it. And everything else, you've somehow convinced me that we need to keep it. We're hanging on to a Connect Four set that I'm pretty sure only has four pieces that go with the Connect Four. But my wife has convinced me they'll turn up someday. Right? You laugh because you know it's true. You have all been there with me. But I stress out about this. Because as we're approaching this season, and as I'm looking around my house, and I'm thinking, man, the concept that I want to get into my kids' brains is you're about to get things that are brand new, that have all the pieces, that don't have somebody snot on them. <laughs> it's time to get rid of the old. And as we're wrestling through our passage this morning, I think in a lot of ways, what we're challenged with, probably more often than we think, is this concept, this idea that there are certain things in our life that don't mix well like we hope they would. In our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus teaches this extremely powerful lesson, and he challenges us in this idea that there are things that we're holding on to that maybe it's time to let go of. But in a way that's not just let go of them, in a way so that he can give us new things. And so Mark chapter 2, let's read our passage together this morning, starting at verse 18. It says this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and they said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now here's what I love about this passage that we're diving into this morning. It's a very simple concept to understand what Jesus is teaching here. There's not a lot that we have to wrestle with to really get at the core of what he's teaching. He's using two very simple analogies. And so just to unpack them real quick, he, he talks about the cloth and he talks about the wineskin. And I don't know how many of you are crafters. I've never sewed a thing in my life. That's not true. I made a pair of pajama pants in like sixth grade and they were pretty awesome. But if you are a, uh, a crafter, then maybe you know this concept that if you have an old garment that has a tear in it, you can't take just a brand new cloth and, and, and make it fit that hole. Because what will happen is once you sew it in there, that new cloth is eventually going to shrink. 
And it's going to tear away from the stitches that you made in it. And oftentimes it's going to make the tear bigger. The other analogy that he uses is the wineskins. And uh, how that would work is they would take new wine, and you had to put it in a new wine skin, because what would happen is during the fermentation process, that wine gives off gases, right? And if you take new wine and you put it into an old wine skin that's already been stretched and is brittle, what's going to happen is that wine skin is eventually going to burst, and all of your new wine is going to be on the floor, and so you have to take the new wine and put it in a new wine skin so that it has the capacity to expand. But the concept that Jesus is teaching here is way more difficult for us to wrestle with. And so right out of the gate, I want us to all understand what he's talking about. He is he's teaching us that when it comes to following Jesus, you cannot put new ideas into an old mindset. When it comes to being a disciple, when it comes to living this new life that Jesus has raised us up into, the old mindset and the new life do not mix. And so there are several things that I want to pull out of this passage this morning. And the first is this, that we must remember that Jesus came to fulfill the old. Jesus came to fulfill the old. It's a common theme we've already seen in the book of Mark. We've seen it a couple of different times now that Jesus was different. His disciples noticed it. The crowds noticed it. The Pharisees noticed it. Everybody notices that this guy that is now on the scene is different. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, I told you we're entering into this section of controversy that Jesus is going to experience. And there's this framework that keeps happening uh, as we see Jesus go about his ministry. And what happens is Jesus does something or he says something that's considered scandalous or it's considered going against the norm of what society had gotten used to. And then you have a group of people, typically the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, that would take offense by that and they would challenge Jesus in different ways. We saw a couple of weeks ago that they were just challenging him in their hearts, and Jesus calls them out. But now they're challenging out loud. What is this guy doing? He's disrupting our way of doing things. But what always happens, and this is what I love, is that Jesus always provides an answer for why he's doing what he's doing. We have this thing in my house that I always try to convince my kids that whatever they're doing, there's a better way to do it, right? Like, hey, you're trying to use a fork to tie your shoes, which has happened. There's, there's a better way. We haven't cracked fork technology in the shoe tying department yet. But every time, every time, they're convinced the way I do it's pretty good, though. And I think we wrestle with that, right? Like, we could do something uh, in a completely wrong way forever, but we've convinced ourselves that this, it's the best way to do it. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, you know there's a better way? And most of the time we're like, I don't know, it seems a little sketchy. I'm not ready to buy into that just yet. 
And that's exactly what's happening here is that Jesus is coming and he's bringing this new way. And there's a group of people that are always like, our old way is pretty good. Our old way is the best way. And so this scene in Mark chapter 2, it centers around the spiritual practice of fasting. And again, people notice Jesus is different. And so just so we're on the same page before we go any further, let's talk about fasting real quick because it can be taken many different ways. But typically in this context, uh, it's most common practice centered around the practice of giving up food for a certain period uh, of time. And in the Old Testament, it's interesting actually, uh, fasting was a common practice when you were grieving something or when you were repenting of your sin. It wasn't meant necessarily to be a, uh, a joyous practice. It was kind of a very solemn practice. And in the Old Testament law of Moses, God commanded actually one fast for all people of Israel once a year. It was on what's called the Day of Atonement. And in this uh, ceremony, this, this, this ritual, what would happen is the, the high priest would go and would offer various sacrifices and, and perform various rituals to atone for the sin of the people of Israel. And what God would say is, while, while that's happening, I want the whole nation of Israel to fast. The idea being that you're giving up something that you need, but you're doing it to focus on that which you need even more. That you need payment for your sin. You need somebody to redeem you. You see individual, uh, individual stories of fasting throughout the rest of the scriptures. Moses fasted, David fasted, Daniel fasted all at different times. They made it regular parts of their spiritual walk, but the, the purpose of it for all of them every time was just to draw near to God. To, to put yourself in a right place so that you know how much you need him to satisfy your greatest need. And so as we unpack this story, we have two groups of people. We have the disciples of John the Baptist and we have the disciples of the Pharisees. And each are fasting, but I think it's important to, to point out that each are probably fasting for very different reasons. And so don't lump them together just yet. Now, the, the disciples of John the Baptist, uh, most likely fasting was part of their spiritual walk. They did this regularly. John the Baptist, if you don't know much about him, he was a very simple man. His life was characterized by a very frugal, simple way of living. And so he would impart that way into his disciples as well. And at this point in our story, John is imprisoned. And so his disciples are also in this place of, of grief, unsure of what to do, where to go, because uh, the one, their, their teacher, if you will, is locked away. And so they're using all of this, they're using this practice of fasting to draw closer to God in their moment of distress, disruption. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they fasted because they wanted people to see how great they were. I've fasted maybe twice in my life, and both times I made sure people knew it. 
You know, like you, you walk by somebody who's eating lunch and they don't even say anything to you and you're like, nothing for me. I am fasting on this day. Right? But that was kind of the attitude of the Pharisees. They, uh, it says actually in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus calls them out. He's talking to the crowds. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy. And I'm like, ooh, but I'm pretty good at that, right? Don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. And then he says this part, which is really the, the sock to the gut, right? Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And so the, fa- the, the Pharisees are, are fasting for very different reasons. It's become a religious obligation, but even more than that, it's become something that represents their own status. How superior they are to others. But what I love about this passage is Jesus is addressing both. He's addressing the disciples of John who are fasting for for great reason, but he's also addressing the disciples of the Pharisees who are fasting out of their own self-salvation. And it's interesting what he comes to say. He says, hey, I've come to fulfill the old way. And I'm bringing something new. And there's not a reason to fast right now. There's a reason to celebrate. My family, we offer a service to the public that maybe you don't know about. I'm going to tell you. If you want something destroyed, bring it to us. (laughs) Charge a small fee. But we're great at destroying something. And I'm including myself in that. I've destroyed many things. I, Diana, my wife, can tell you uh, at least once a week I open the cabinet that our bowls are in, our very nice bowls that have, you know, that were like her parents, grandparents' parents', you know, kind of thing. And every time, I don't know how, one falls on the floor and shatters. My wife has, has painted me lovely ceramic bowls and, and, you know, ceramic goodies. Most of them shattered to where she doesn't give me gifts anymore. (laughs) And that's good, that's good. But we're great at destroying things, right? There's so many things that we break easily, but I I think what I've been wrestling with is there are different ways that you can destroy something that I feel like is important to point out here. Take an acorn, for example. There's two ways to destroy an acorn. If you feel so inclined, you can smash it with a hammer. Don't know why you would, but you could. The other way that you could destroy an acorn is by planting it. If you plant it, you nurture it, you do all the things that you're supposed to do, eventually what will happen is it will start to grow. Now, is the acorn still there? It's pretty much been destroyed at that point. But it's been destroyed in a way that it has come into its fullness that what it was intended to do, it has now done, and something new has now come out of its place. And I think what's interesting here is that that's what Jesus is doing. Nowhere in this passage does Jesus talk about how bad the old wine is. He doesn't 
talk about how bad the old garment is. But what he is saying is, hey, the old way has been destroyed in that it has reached its fulfillment in me. And now something new is coming in its place. He says in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in that one statement, there are some hugely important concepts that are happening here that Jesus is telling us something he did not do, and he's also telling us something that he did. What did he not do? He didn't come to tell us that the law and the prophets were bad. He didn't come to tell us that his purpose was to overrule or to recorrect the word, to dissolve it or to render it invalid. But what he told us is that he's come to fulfill them, to fulfill the old, to take the old wineskin so that you can experience something new. Friends, this is why we should still be reading and studying the Old Testament. Not because it, it is going to teach us, you know, we have to follow the, the rituals and practices. No, but because in the pages of the Old Testament, we see Jesus. We see how Jesus fulfilled it, how he, he brought the promises of it, how Christ was the culmination of the law. And in him, it is accomplished. And because of Jesus, we now get to enter into something new. Which brings us to our, our next point in this passage. Jesus came to make things new. And so as, as we've seen, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees in their old way, their old mindset. He's bringing something new that they're not willing to accept. And, and we've said this before, but it bears repeating. Jesus' presence marks the beginning of a new chapter in the plan of God. And notice what I said there, a new chapter in the plan of God. It's all worked together. Jesus had this plan from the beginning, so it's not like he's saying, well, that really didn't work, and so we're going to try something different. No, Jesus marks, we're closing a chapter, and we're opening a brand new chapter. And ultimately, why we have to get that into our minds is because if we don't, we will realize quickly that Jesus doesn't fit into our old chapters, Jesus doesn't fit into our old way of doing things. And if you're like me, this is the moment where you start to get a little uncomfortable. Because I'll, I'll speak for myself as somebody who's wrestled with this recently, I love to be the hero of my story. And before Jesus, I was the hero of my story. And I can tell you later that that didn't go well. But as I entered into a new chapter, raised in a new life in Jesus, I still struggle going back to being the hero of my, my story. And maybe you, like me, have experienced how frustrating that can be. 
And I think the analogy that Jesus unpacks here is very relevant because we love our old wine. It's what we know. It's what we've grown to be accustomed to. It's what we like. And I think what we fail to realize is that so many times we aren't willing to trade what we find comfortable and trustworthy for something that Jesus offers us, but that only can be experienced through faith. I love the movie Up. You guys know that movie? It's a great movie. If you, for whatever reason, haven't seen it, go watch that uh, this afternoon. But there's a character in the movie Up. His name is Russell. We have a, we have a picture of my friend Russell. This is Russell. I love Russell. I, I feel like if I had a Disney spirit animal, it would be Russell. Probably not, because he was super helpful. And that's a, that's a conversation for another time. But Russell was a wilderness explorer. And so think Eagle Scout, right? He had this sash that had all of these badges of all these things that he accomplished. But if you notice, right there in the middle, there's one missing. And that was his assisting the elderly badge. He needed to find somebody of the elder qualification that he could assist in some way. So he comes across this, this grumpy old man, and he just does everything that he can to try to help him. right? And so then the plot unfolds. I won't spoil the movie for you in case you haven't seen it. But I was thinking about Russell this week, and I thought, man... I think I treat Jesus that way. Now, hang, hang with me for a second. I think what so many of us do is we have this sash of our life. And over the course of our life, we have all these different accomplishments, all these different ways of thinking, all these different emotions that we're comfortable with, these comfort zones, these limits, everything that we have placed on there. And we've got one little spot that we say, we're just going to put Jesus right there. And that will complete our life. That will make everything better. Everything will then fall into balance. And as I was thinking about that, I was looking at this passage. And I got hung up on the question that Jesus is being asked. And the question that he's being asked is how... How does Jesus fit into our concept of fasting? When really the question that they should be asking is, how does fasting fit in with this new Jesus that we're experiencing? And church, is it not true that we do the exact same thing? So many times for me in my life, I get caught in this trap of thinking, Jesus, how do you fit so perfectly into my life without disrupting anything else? Without moving anything else around, without sacrificing anything else that I've grown to love and have accomplished and have grown accustomed to, when in reality, what we should be asking ourselves daily is Jesus, if I've experienced you, if I've called out to you as my Savior, then the question that I should be asking is how does your presence in my life, how does that impact 
the rest of who I am. And it's in that moment where I have to ask myself, am I willing to give up things that I've grown to hold so closely? And I would challenge all of us to think this morning, if salvation in Christ, if our faith is more than just self-improvement, is more than just a quick fix, a temporary patch on a much bigger tear, an addition to our old life, then we have to ask ourselves, what do I need to let go of? And I've said it, but I'll say it again. That's a question we have to ask ourselves multiple times. And so I asked myself, over the last couple of weeks, I've been asking, God, what are some things that I've been holding on to that I need to let go of? And I'll give you the three that I believe the Holy Spirit kept bringing up to my mind. And the first one is this, my God of comfort. I love being comfortable. Not just physically. I mean, I'm all about comfy pants. I love comfy pants. But I just like to be comfortable in what I'm doing. Right? I like to do things I know I can do. I don't want to do things that I don't think I can do. I like to have conversations that I know what I'm talking about. I don't like to have conversations where I have to rely on the Holy Spirit to help give me the words, right? You know what I'm talking about? I love my God of comfort. And I have to remind myself, that's that old wine. That's that old life. And so let's go back to what I said. Remember, we're going to be asked to give away something but not so that we can remain empty-handed, but so that God can give us something of even greater value. And so for me, the new wine has to tell me, John 15, 16, says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, what does that say to my God of comfort? says, hey, God has called you. He's called you out of what's comfortable. He's called you out of what's comfortable so that he can bear fruit in you. He can push you, stretch you to a capacity that you didn't even know you were capable of through the power of the Holy Spirit. Which then brought another thing to mind. My God of control. I love to be in control. It's my favorite place to be, if I'm honest. I like to know what's happening. I like to know the pieces that are at play. I like to know what my next step is going to be. And if there's something that, that, that conflicts with that, that causes me to, to be out of control, to surrender control, I get real testy. And I've had to remember, that's the old wine. That's that old way I used to do things. What does the new wine say? John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. I cling to control. It's one of my biggest struggles. And daily, I have to remind myself that when I start grabbing for that control, apart from God, I can do nothing. 
Which then brought me to my third one, which is simply the God of myself. We all like to go through life believing that we're our own God, that we're the final say. We're the ones who control our destiny. We're the ones that do the things that we want to do and we don't do the things that we don't want to do. When in reality, when we live that way, we have it reversed. Paul says, I don't, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And I do the things that I shouldn't do. And in that moment, when I convince myself, no, that's the old wine, what does the new wine say? I go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9 says, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What does that tell the God of myself that believes that I can save myself? That if I just read my Bible through a few more times, that if I just pray a few more times, that if I just preach a couple more sermons, teach a couple more classes, listen to a couple more podcasts, then I'll be good? No, what does this say? It has nothing to do with what I do. The righteousness that I have doesn't come from the things that I do. It came from the one who died for me. And friends, for all of us, when we remind ourselves that Jesus came to bring new things. Yes, it's difficult to let go. But when we remind ourselves that what Jesus wants to give us is far more valuable than that which we hold on to, friends, it's a reason to celebrate. It's a reason to get excited. Which brings us to our last thing that I want to look at this morning, that Jesus will turn our fasting into feasting. I love Jesus' response to the Pharisees. He says in, in verse 19 of Mark chapter 2, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And in the Jewish community, weddings were a big deal. You were engaged for a year. And then you had a wedding ceremony, and then you had a reception that lasted for a week. And there are some of you dads in here that have paid for weddings, and you're like, I'm glad we let that one go. And as somebody who has two daughters, I am too, right? But think about, have you ever been to a wedding where you go through the ceremony and you do all the things, and then everybody knows you're just looking forward to the reception, and you get there, and somebody gets on the mic and says, uh, in honor of the bride and groom, we're going to fast today? <laughs> friends, if you've ever been to that wedding, don't be friends with those people anymore. <laughs> I'm telling you, you can love them, but distance yourselves from them. But that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, no. The bridegroom is here. I'm here. This is not a reason for grieving and mourning. This is a reason to celebrate. This is a reason to have a feast. Because, friends, what we know is that when the presence of Jesus is here, there is feasting. But he continues, and he says in verse 20, he says, the days are going to come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So we can talk about what day he's referring to. Is he referring to his death on the cross? Maybe. I think what fits more is this picture that we have at the opening of Acts. And in the book of Acts, after Jesus' resurrection, he's giving some final words to his disciples. He promises them the coming of the Holy Spirit that is going to help them. 
And as he does, he ascends up into heaven to go back to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And the disciples in this moment, in this scene, are stuck looking up. And I don't know how long they're looking up. I don't know what they're thinking, what the mood is there. But at that moment, there's two angels that come and they say in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, they say, men of Galilee, why are you staring into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so friends, just to to say it, should we make fasting part of our spiritual practice? I would argue yes. It's a great way to grow in worship. It's a great way to experience your need, your longing for God in a new way. But the point is this. As followers of Christ, we should be characterized by something brand new, by joy. That as we willingly surrender that which we're comfortable with, that which we cling to, we are able to receive the joy that's given to us that one day there will be no more reason to fast, no more reason to grieve, because the bridegroom will come back for the bride, for the church, and we will enter in to a feast. And so for us today, the challenge is this. What are we still holding on to? What are the old mindsets, the old ways, the old excuses that we've grown to treat like many gods in our own life. In church, might we have the ability to be able to let go as hard as it is, but to do it with joy, knowing that Jesus wants us to grow in our faith, to grow in our knowledge of God, to know the joy of Christian fellowship, to fill our lives with goodness, to experience the Holy Spirit making all things new. And remembering that when we're impacted by the presence of Jesus and we're called to die to ourselves, it's actually a very good thing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, God, the goodness of who you are and for what you came to bring God, that in you we do have new life. God, in you we do get to experience this new chapter. That it's no longer about the works that we have to do, the rituals we have to perform, but God, that you came to fulfill it all, to perfectly embody what is required so that, God, we can experience your goodness and your presence, your redemption. So God, I pray for all of us as we sit here and we wrestle with that question, what are the old things that we have grown to love? God, I pray that you would give us the strength to release them, to ask your spirit to come and to fill us so that we could experience a new way, a powerful way, God, your presence bursting forth from our life as a new creation.
risen in you. In Jesus' name, amen.